Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our Lockdown Project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. And welcome to Wise Children's Tea and Biscuits. And today I am absolutely delighted because I'm talking to my friend and colleague, Tony Jaiwardena. Hi, Tony. Hello, Emma. Lovely Rice, the magpie of theatre. There she is. <laughs> I like that. I collect all the gems. I love it. The shiny things. Well, you, you told me, I think, wasn't that, was that not your nickname when you were younger? Yes. Because you collected all the shiny things. Yeah, you told me that with the Barbar Girls. So that's why I always remember you as the magpie. I always remember that oh, story. Oh, I should have that, shouldn't I? The magpie. Like a superhero. Yeah. I should just drop Emma Rice. Like Madonna, just become magpie. Yes, just the magpie. <laughs> Directed by the magpie. Excellent. That'd be great. That'd be really good. Oh, it's really, really good to see you. I'm smiling ear to ear at looking at my beautiful old friend. But before we get onto insignificant matters, what is your biscuits yes. of choice? Ah, my, um, yes, uh, I had a long, hard think about this. And and I came down, uh, you can't beat a bour- bourbon. <gasps> bourbon cream. Love a bourbon cream. Do you know, I think you're the first person to choose a bourbon. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because it's, it's very simple. It's very simple. <laughs> um, and I think they've gone down now because because you can get packs of like 300 for like 60p in your local newsagent. They've like lost any kind of class they ever once had, maybe <laughs> in the 70s. But I still really like them. I really like them. They're very, um, yeah. I, I used yeah, to piece very... them. I used to pry them apart, scrape off the soft filling, eat it yes! that way, and then have the two biscuits. It would be like three pleasures in one. Yes, Emma. <laughs> yes, Emma. That is how you eat a bourbon. Oh, my God. Of course it is. That is absolutely how you eat a bourbon. Bourbon cream. Yeah, there we go. And how's it going? How's lockdown three? How's it all been? Where are you? Paint me a picture. I'm in um, Holloway Road in the flat that I share with my brother that I've shared with him for... God, it, it might be close to 10 years now. Um, I, I hate it. I, I hate lockdown um, with, with a fiery passion because, <clears throat> I mean, this one is... I feel it's slightly worse than the others uh, because, um, you know, um, things feel like at a more critical stage. It also feels a little scarier going outside, so I'm not going far from home ever. I don't have a woods on my doorstep, so I can't go for long walks anywhere. And it feels, I mean, it's not, but it, it does feel like it could be dangerous walking outside at the moment because people are getting very, understandably, aggressive and angry and bored and of the whole thing. Um, so this one feels more, I, I, feel, I feel more isolated in this one than I did in the others. Um, but I've... Yeah, in all honesty, I've struggled because mm. it feels like you're living without a part of yourself. It feels like you're living without a part of your soul. I, you know, I think I, I, I've, I don't think I, I think I, all, I did appreciate it at one point. I think I lost appreciation um, for why I love what I do and why I do what I do, which is that it fulfilled a massive part of myself 
that wasn't being fulfilled beforehand. Mm -hmm. I found my voice on a stage. That's why I started properly myself, going forward for school plays and stuff like that. I found a massive part of who I am. And um, this translates into everyday life as well, but without that connection to people, without being in that room with those people, you know, that you can touch and feel and taste and smell and sing with and laugh with and argue with and debate with and feel like you can put yourself aside to accomplish something wonderful or the possibility of being wonderful um, has been lacking uh, to me and to everyone, well, to most of us in our industry for um, almost a year now. And that is, I found that very, very hard personally. Um, professionally, but mainly personally and emotionally, I've found it very hard indeed. You've, yeah. You put it very eloquently. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because you do, I mean, God, I just agree with everything. I'm just here sort of going, yes, I feel, I feel the same. Um, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because you do think, well, theatre doesn't matter. It's an irrelevance. It's a luxury. But, but what you've just described is that for those of us that have chosen it as our lives, it's so much more than a job. It's it's Absolutely. And it's so much more than showing off, which is something I actually value quite highly in life. But it is <laughs> to do with how we, how we are ourselves. And a lot of us are very shy. A lot of us struggle with all sorts of other things. And theatre's a world where we express all sorts of emotions and share them and it's all gone and i know it's a luxury but yeah. my goodness we're adrift aren't we yeah we are and and i think it was interesting what you're saying about the the value of it because i think that was one of the biggest things that i felt in, in the first lockdown was i i felt unbelievably not valuable um you know i have plenty of friends that have families um, and young kids and things like that at the moment. I tell you, if it wasn't for, I have a lovely, beautiful goddaughter, Matilda Tilly, uh, who's now uh, 11 years old. And she was allowed to call or WhatsApp five numbers by her parents on, on her phone. And I was one of the five. And without her calling up to moan or to tell me about her, you know, terribly boring day or whatever it was, genuinely, I'm not sure I would have felt like I had any value during that whole first lockdown at all as a human being. And that's a very difficult thing to face because I know that the work, I, I do know that the work I, I've done has had value. However, a small way it may have done, I've come across the people, I've met the people, I've worked with the people and I've talked to people in the audiences that, that I, I, I've seen that it does have a value. And I know that it does. Art has an incredible value to the success of a society, I believe. Um, and culture and, and expanding in those ways. But it's so hard individually to justify that when people are dying, when people are starving, when people are fighting for their jobs, not just in our industry, but across the whole thing. Um, you end up, so then your feelings of non-value are then coupled with feelings of shame and guilt. Um, and that just compounds it. And usually the people that you can go to um, to help in any one of those funks are your friends, family, and in our case, is our work family. Yeah. And that just hasn't been possible. I, and I've even had some work, but the uh, I did some TV work, but even during that, 
it was nowhere near the same experience because we had to keep isolated. We couldn't even eat lunch together. We had to wear masks right until we did, did the take. And it was all a case of, you felt the pressure of just get it done, get it done, get it done, get it done. And it wasn't about that creativity at all. Um, and that was, uh, it was really hard, really hard. So, you know, I said my love and light to all the people, not just in our industry, but all the people that are listening who feel the same way, because I think we're all in a similar boat. Oh God, I second that. Yeah, no shame or guilt. But I know what you no, mean, it's the no. lack of purpose. Yeah. It's the lack of purpose is very hard. Well, somebody said to me the other day, what am I for? And I thought it was a very good question. I've never asked that question before. I've always been very busy and very happy and very uh, focused. <laughs> but yeah, what am I for at the moment? Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Cheer us up. Tell me about your first yeah. um, choice and why music choice. Okay, I've chosen Sunrise Sunset from Fiddle on the Roof. Fiddle on the Roof is my favourite musical. It has been with me for as long as I can remember. We had three cassettes growing up. One was E.T., one was Camelot the Musical, and one was Fiddle on the Roof. And Fiddle on the Roof has remained with me so for all of my life, and it's been one of my favourite musicals ever. This particular song, I thought immediately when you asked me to do this, is because it's the first song I ever sang to you. When you auditioned me for the workshop of Varva Girls, you went, sing me a song, just sing me something. Um, and I sang Sunrise Sunset to you, and your reaction was so beautiful. You enjoyed it so much. I've never forgotten that memory. Um, so I have this dual thing of it is absolutely one of the, it is my favourite musical of all time, but specifically to you, it has a very special place in my heart, this song. And I remember it like it was yesterday as well, Tony, because uh, I didn't <laughs> expect that voice to come out, and I didn't expect that song to be chosen, and and it's perfect as well, Sunrise Sunset. It's what Absolutely. we're experiencing now, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you. 
them can I give them? How can I help to ease their way? Now they must learn from one another day by day. They look so natural Just like two newlyweds should be. Is there a canopy in store for me? What a sensational choice. The romance, Tony, the, the sort of the soul <laughs> and the romance. It's beautiful. And that's the original cast recording. His voice, I think. Yeah, and my, of course, my experience of it is with also his top old playing Tevia. And his voice was always so rich and full of feeling. I love, you know... I remember distinctly because I looked up how old he was only 36. He looks like he's in his 60s when he's playing that. He was only 36 or 37 when he made that film. And the depth of feeling in his voice and the close ups, the wrinkles in his eyes, and the look in his were absolutely astonishing. But that whole song, I think, and the whole musical, but especially that song, there's the little verse, and, verse for one of the daughters and her boyfriends as well. There's the aspiration in that song, the hope for tomorrow. I think it's something, I think it embedded my main hopes for life in a weird way. It, it absolutely drilled them into the heart of me, into the center of me. I've lived with those and battled with those all of my life. But yeah, I've always, I mean, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I would love to one day play Tevye because I'd love to sing those songs. And I got to be in one production of it at school and it was the joy of my life. It would mean a huge, huge amount to me to do. But that voice, top old playing Tevye, is just That's incredible. got to be an achievable dream. That has got to happen. <laughs> oh, we'll see. We'll see. Well, listen, you've taken me yeah. right back to when we met, um, which was Far yes. Bar Girls' seminal project in my life. Um, seminal was. time. Now, we probably met in 2011 because it was a... The project was in 2012, which was part yes. of the Cultural Olympiad. Or it was Olympiad, yes. One of the many schemes that were going on. And it was a three-way collaboration between Stratford East, Sadler's Wells and Knee High Theatre. And the aim was yeah. to create a British Bollywood yeah. musical. And um, you'll laugh because I've also had a lovely chat yes. with um, Natasha Tatalika in the um, and these two. Oh, have you? Oh, so we've been I reminiscing about um, this a little and I mean, it was it was like 
sledging down a big hill on a tray, wasn't it? Or, or, or just a bin bag. I mean, it felt like we were pretty much out of control for the whole project. Oh, we, we, we were massively out of control. Uh, we were massively out of control. And um, it was my, it was also, you know, it was my, mine and yours first um, working together as actor and director. <clears throat> and it was my, I think it was probably one of my first experiences of where my clashes with the director were the most kind of not in, were the most releasing they, you released i was very because i'm i remember you very distinctly one day said to me tony logic really and i went yeah emma <laughs> and you but you the fights with you on that stuff just and it was the same with all of our projects after that just got me to let go and got me to risk more than i usually would and that was really important we you know the project itself was the project itself. You know, as I, as I heard you talk to Tanika talking about the amazing giant pigeon, I was like, holy shit, that pigeon. Oh, it was incredible. But, you know, the, the process of that working, that collaboration with music, with dance, with puppetry, with everything, <clears throat> which I've come to, you know, see as a real uh, key part of the process when working with you, was wonderful it was it was dizzying and it was crazy but it was releasing and kind of like you just when you go with it as opposed to fight it you find so much more good and you find so much more um you know marrow in the bone um <laughs> which um which was fantastic and i got to work with you know people i knew and people i didn't know but some of my favorite people in the world um and also some of the craziest people in the world like our like you also mentioned our beautiful choreographer javed by six seven eight um <laughs> because as you also mentioned when we didn't have the bollywood dancers the actors had to do the Bollywood dance thing. You were there, and Tony, even you though were there doing it all. I'm very fleet of foot. However, <laughs> if you did have mirrors up there, you'd only need one or two because I brought the whole bloody thing. It was like, I've seen video footage of it and I am so much bigger than everyone else in the company. <laughs> At the back of that V, it's incredible <laughs> watching that video. I love the dancing. I love, I, I genuinely enjoy dancing. And I love the fact that Javid pushed us. And it was such a clash of styles and it was he was asking us he was really pushing us to do stuff that was well beyond anything i'd ever done before dance wise so it was it was a real challenge and it was nuts it was nuts i mean we threw everything at it and <clears throat> and and it was i mean that's what you're saying the same thing it's actually skidding downhill on a bin bag is really good fun and we didn't yeah. come off, but it felt like we were going to come off at almost every every stage of it. And like you say, we were being pushed in every direction. I mean, making a musical is impossible anyway. I mean, people, nervous breakdowns have, have happened on much less than trying to get a musical together. But with so many differing voices in such a short time frame, on such a tiny budget, which is also what... I, I certainly know is that it sort of got squeezed and squeezed as these things do but and yep. it was hilarious wasn't it because you know this tiny group of British actors trying to <laughs> trying to skill up so quickly yeah. I mean Natasha was remembering that not only did she have to learn these incredibly difficult Bollywood dances perform them pregnant in an orange bikini yeah. but also lip syncing yeah. to Hindi which she didn't speak <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Natasha and I, Natasha and I have done um, many shows together. Well, a few shows together as well. And you know, you can imagine 
it's one thing for the Hindi speakers, but Natasha and I, uh, our cultural origins are from Sri Lanka, so it's nothing to do with Bollywood whatsoever and nothing to do with Hindi. <coughs> um, so it's it's always, I mean, it's always fascinating doing do, doing that work. Natasha was incredible. I mean, like, to think that she was doing it pregnant. <laughs> and then Rebecca came in and was brilliant as well. But I I fell, I fell in love a little bit with Natasha. I thought she was absolutely mesmeric. Oh, well, join the game. Um, yeah, I mean, like, properly, she was... Yeah, and it, that was actually... I, I'd not worked with Natasha before. I'd worked with Rena before... Um, and I think a couple of the others, but I'm not with, with Natasha, and she was incredible, absolutely incredible. Well, you were also incredible in that show. Your Mansoor was fantastic. Again, you were playing way above your years. I don't, I don't need the white makeup anymore, no, do I? For it. the beard, you've got, got it real now. I've got the real, real, real salt and pepper in the beard now. I don't love, then I just swathes of white mascara <laughs> in my black beard to age me up. Yeah. But you, you know, you were the heart and soul of it, really. Um, and with the beautiful Sophia, who we've lost, oh. which oh. I sort of can't bear to think about, really. But I think between... There was such heart and soul in it. And and it really it cracked open my life. Forget my creative life. That was going to happen in some shape or form, whatever. But that group of people changed the way I saw the world, not just the rehearsal room. And all of you made such a big imprint on me and, my, and enriched my life. I, I, as I say, I sort of have such fond memories sort of not just of the show but of the ripples it made and the connections it made and I, I you know I, I smile imagine. as I think about it it's interesting because I think I think I saw I could see some of the the cracks I could I think I could see some of the ways it was hitting up against you during the show but you never know how that what that's going to result in what I've seen since then of course having been in a few of your productions but also seen many of your other ones is I've seen the effect it's had I've seen it on that on that stage and it's beautiful it's absolutely glorious because you're just adding more and more colors to your palette every time you do another new piece of work. And that's how it should be. That's exactly how it should be. So it was glorious to see you move on from there to do other stuff. Like, I mean, like we did The Empress as well, but then I remember when I turned up at the Globe to watch Midsummer Night's Dream and I saw that, oh, I've forgotten her name, the wonderful sitar player uh, that we had. Oh, Shima, sitting Shima up Mukherjee. On, Shima, yes, yes. Sitting up in the same position on top of this roof bit. And you, I just thought, oh my God, this is glorious. It's the Globe. And you've got a sitar player sitting up there, just like you did in The Empress. It was fantastic. It was beautiful to watch him. Well, thank you. And thanks to the Olympics, because, you know, that was the plan. Yeah. And, you know, actually, like you say, the, the, the plan worked. The life mm. is, is richer, all the richer. So I'm going to do my first song choice. Now, Tony, you will laugh. Vava Girls was never recorded, never captured. And we now know that because everybody has been contacted in the last week trying to get a hold of some recordings, which we failed. Really? But, uh, okay. but it's been lovely. We've all been, the whole Vava team has been sort of re reconnecting, trying to find... Oh, lovely. Um, and there might be... Nirash Shaku composed the music. I think there might yep. be the Vava theme coming through later tonight. But in case that doesn't come through, what we have got is the Sita dance-off, which is really a bit of... Um, there's no lyrics in it, apart from there are the bowls that Glory <coughs> did. There's some amazing vocals in there. So here's a yeah. little bit of a taster of some of the modernity in Vava Girls. See if you remember this. Daddy, 
stuff is really exciting, isn't it? It's amazing. Gory, unbelievable. <laughs> she was she was extraordinary. <clears throat> Wasn't she? She was I mean like she was the one who like it was it was good she was there because she kind of tempered Javid a bit, but also realized that the caliber, especially when it came down. I mean, can you remember it's me, Delroy, and Phil for crying out loud. And uh and um Gurpri. Oh my god. You know, she realized the caliber of we were not the most delicate beings in the world when it came down to Katak <laughs> traditional dancing, which was what you know she was the the guru on. And she was so patient with us, but was so just as soon as she opened her mouth, you could tell there was like genius there. She was brilliant. 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 Oh. Um, you said one thing that I just wanted to touch on is you'd um Rina Fatania. You'd known her already. <gasps> But then yeah. um, work with her again on Vava Girls with Tanika, who wrote the book, the brilliant book. Yeah. Um, and there was a spin-off. You were so popular in that show. You actually had a theatre spin-off. Tell me about that. We did. So one of, like you mentioned, one of our partners was Stratford East. Um, and uh, Kerry, um, who was in charge of Stratford East, said, I want to see those two characters in a, in a show of their own. <laughs> so... I think there was a plan because there was some renovations being done at Stratford. So it wasn't going to be a full house. They literally, they brought the, the curtain, the iron in and made a hundred seat theatre on the stage and a smaller stage kind of in front of that. And we literally did it in about two weeks. And we did a show where Rena and I were playing those two characters, those older characters, as in actually not the character that I played for, for the main show, but like her husband the husband of Rena that was watching the TV show. And it was based, centered around them, but then we also played about five or six other characters each. <clears throat> and so sometimes you'd have five characters on stage, but only two actors. And it ended up being a brilliant, you know, technical theatrical exercise for the two of us. But also I got to play with my friend Rena and she got to throw me up against the wall and practically sexually assault me every day she did not actually sexually assault me it was just theater just theater um but it was beautiful and it was you know an hour and 15 straight through and it was wonderful it was yeah, it was great those, i remember those characters it were it was beautiful and i and uh it was a wonderful i felt slightly like a proud parent because having sort of been there at the beginning of those characters to then be able to come to the theater and just watch them fly free but it was a tour de force as performers uh, both of you are exceptional performers but just what a lovely thing that the world was small enough and brave enough to because we joke about that yeah. saying there should be a sequel and there actually was and it was bloody amazing <laughs> yeah yeah no every now and again you know i i throughout my entire career i've had um i've seen shows or i've been in shows where i've gone why hasn't that gone on anywhere? Why hasn't that done something after? And here was a time when it actually did, so it was great that that happened. Tell me about your second song choice and why. <clears throat> okay, so this is Ring of Keys from Fun Home, yes? Um, I had no idea what Fun Home was about. I'm a huge musical theatre fan, as you know, and as I'm sure everyone can tell. So Fun Home, just a quick history, is the story of Alison Bechdel. Alison Bechdel... Uh, of the Bechdel Test and of many, many other things, wrote a graphic novel about her own childhood. And it was about the main relationship was between her and her father. And Alison was gay and her father was gay. So you have Alison at three different ages, kind of eight, 
kind of a university age and then as an adult. Um, and her father never truly admitted um, his sexuality and she always had to struggle with hers um, and never got to a point where she could communicate that with her dad. But this particular song is when she's eight years old and she's in a diner and a UPS woman or a delivery woman comes in with short hair and dungarees and boots and she falls in love. Now, I went to see this at the Young Vic and I was on the front row because my wonderful friend Christy always gets front row seats to everything that she wants to go and see. I, I can't have been more than 10 feet away from this, what, 12-year-old girl singing this song? I'm telling you, Emma, she had no one else on stage with her. She's visualising it just by herself in her imagination and I saw someone fall in love at that young age. I was broken. She must have thought I was crazy because she could obviously see me. I was directly in front of her on the front row. There's not a big gap like in big theatres and I was bawling my eyes out and I was transfixed. This girl, actually there was a moment where almost the love that this girl felt pulled her forward completely naturally and I gasped and it was it was just it represents one of the most incredibly pure profound theatrical experiences I've ever had so that's why I chose it you didn't notice her at first but I saw her the moment she walked in she was a delivery woman she came in with a handcart full of packages she was an old-school butch Someone just came in the door Like no one I ever saw before I feel... I feel... I don't know where you came from I wish I did, I feel so dumb I feel... Your swagger and your bearing and just right clothes you're wearing your short hair and your dungarees and your lace-up boots and your keys oh your ring of keys i thought it was supposed to be
it's astonishing, actually, especially when I hear you tell the story. That's your love letter to theatre, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. And also, when I watched it, the lovely Nigel Lilly was MDing um, oh. on that day. Oh. Um, so I knew he was up there as well, which was also another poignant, lovely thing. It was just incredible to me that this young kid, I actually saw her come out of the theatre and I didn't want to, like, you know, she had, a, obviously, a, her chaperone or her parents with her and I just went... I just wanted to say, really well done. It was absolutely fantastic. I wanted to bow down at this little girl's feet and go, you're amazing! But I thought that might have scared her a little bit or creeped her out. Um, Good call, was... by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just, it was beautiful. It was incredible. incredible. Oh. So, yeah, as a, as a direct result of Vavar Girls, Tanika yes. asked me if I would read her play about Queen Victoria. Now, you won't know this, but I don't really direct plays. I don't consider it to be what I'm good at. I think I'm good at making theatre, adapting, devising. And I read the play and I thought, this is amazing, but I'm going to say no. I just, I don't know why. I've got some sort of inbuilt kamikaze. And I said no. And Tanika was pretty sad and she said, you know, you're my first choice, but I respect that. And then I just kept thinking about it. And I did that annoying thing where I, I don't know where, I can't remember whether it was a week later or two weeks later. I said, Tanika, I keep thinking about your play. Is it too late? And she was like, <laughs> damn it, Emma. I just need to <laughs> sort some things out. I don't know oh, what really? to sort out. Yeah. Okay. But, um, okay. but thankfully it all came good. And I, and I, and I again, will never remember <clears throat> this because what a play. How important yeah. was it? I mean, when I think about it and, um, for anybody that hasn't seen The Empress, I'm very sorry is the first thing I'd like to say, because it was amazing. <laughs> yes. And I should think it's most of the population, because it did a tiny short run at the RSC, at the yeah. Swan. It was commissioned in Michael Boyd's um, tenure, but actually he'd already yeah. passed, just passed over to Greg Doran, so we sort of fell between yeah. the RSC cracks in many ways. Yeah. And it was the story of um, Queen Victoria and her love affair with her Indian servant, Abdul Karim, um, and also the story of Rani, who was a young um, nanny who came over from India, Aya, they were called, um, and then was abandoned at the docks, and also Dadabai Naroji, who was the first Asian MP in the East End. And Tanika managed to weave together this Shakespearean history play with a monarch at the centre of it, but through a completely different lens. I mean, I've got goosebumps describing it. It felt so important. And I am, I loved the production and you were my Abdul Kareem. And with BT Edney, who was Queen Victoria. And again, the heart of it, what a complex character he was, what a play it was and what a performance you put in. And I cannot quite believe that that's one of the shows you think, was that it? Is that what happened to it? Yeah. Talk to me about your experience of that show. I mean, like, looking back, it was, it, it was, you want every show to be an Empress. From, I mean, can you remember we went to um, the Isle of Wight? Yes. And went to Osborne House and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm never a massive advocate of uh, research. I like to do the words on the page and make them alive and, and take it from that. But my God, the stuff I learned on that play. Dalabai Naraji was the first Indian, uh, first Asian MP in 1892, MP, of, MP to Finsbury. 
to the parliament. How many people know that? I, I had no idea. No idea there was an Indian MP in 1892. And then <clears throat> Abdul Karim's story was one of those parts that comes along where you go, even looking at photos of the guy, and I go, holy crap, I feel like so... I felt like I got to know him so well. I felt like... Um, yeah, I, I felt like the story was so rich. But there, you know, there's that's a really special one to me. There's there's a photo of me praying, in, uh, standing over Queen Victoria's body with my hands like this. And I don't think I ever quite got over that moment. I remember on the, our final performance, taking my bow, being absolute tears, and I bowed at you. I bowed to you because it was truly special. The actual production in itself, my God, the things, the swan was perfect for it, right? Mm. It was absolutely perfect for it because we surrounded the audience with that story. We engulfed them in that story. We wrapped our arms around them. And every single person, every, you know, the few people that actually got to see it during that three-week run, from little old white, white ladies to Asian people of my age were enraptured with that show, just like we were. You couldn't help but be. Remember Japjeet singing, you know, traditional Indian riffs on one side and Dom rapping on the other <laughs> with the drumbeat and the sand going by and, and you're just, and the sailors pulling ropes and you're like, it was all encompassing. It was immersive powerful storytelling theatre. It was one of those things that ticked for me every single box. Uh, and yeah, you just go, that deserves more than a three-week run. Uh, forget the fact that I'm in it. I was I was fantastic in it, of course I was. But it doesn't matter. The show itself deserved to run and run and run and run. It deserved, a, you know, a Western transfer or whatever it may be. You could have put it anywhere. And... But the swan was so perfect for it. It was just beautiful. It's a magical, that, magical show. I, I mean, I, I like you. I hold it so close to my heart. It, it, as you say, it blew my mind. The fact there was a home for abandoned ayahs in 1892 for young Indian women. Absolutely. English families, well-to-do English families, had put on boats to look after their children coming from India to England and then dumped them at the docks. And there actually had to be yeah. homes where these women were taken out of their saris, put into corsets and taught how to yeah. be maids. I mean, just shocking, mind-blowing. Um, you know, whenever you see another sort of white version of Dickens, you think, this is not what it was like. No, <laughs> Tanika, exactly. the Empress, taught me that. Taught me to well, see I... the Victorian England in different colours. Yeah, I mean, I had what I consider a, a very good education, but my understanding of immigration to this country was basically vague at best. And was basically said Windrush, 50s, 60s, Asian population followed 60s, 70s. Mm. <clears throat> that is kind of the vague understanding I had of immigration into this country, and it's purely based on the last century. Nothing about the 19th century, nothing about the 18th century, nothing about times before that. And then you go to Osborne House and you turn right and all of a sudden you're in bloody India. <laughs> you're in India, it's ridiculous. This building that was only ever 
Victorian Albert's house, except for six months when it was a sanatorium, and then it's been perfectly preserved, you turn right and Victoria built an entire Indian wing onto Osborne House, and it was all because of Abdul Kareem. And you go, where is that story? How the hell? Oh my God, the Queen of England has literally lined the corridor with the paintings of brown faces. And then this, this architecture that you're so familiar with from traveling to the uh, Asian subcontinent, you go, this is on the Isle of Wight. It's ridiculous. What is going on? You know, it was mind-blowing, that story. And isn't it amazing? Um, I want to say, step aside, John Brown. <laughs> yes. Step in. Yes. Your Kareem. You know, this amazing Absolutely. story that blows your mind. I mean, my favourite memory, which is where I... Uh, is one of my proudest directorial moments is that the was at the very end um, where everything came together like it can do in theatre and the stage Les yep. Brotherston had designed a set which was like an island oh. so we had water all the way around and yep. your letters because Abdul Kareem and Queen Victoria wrote letters to each other which were forcibly destroyed and the chorus yep. all um, folded Abdul's letters into boats and floated them on the water and then when she died we burnt the boats in the water and I think it was actually a different moment in the piece but we also fused my one of my favourite Christian hymns Forgive Our Foolish Ways with Indian voices and Indian movement and I felt that I felt like the worlds were coming together and history was being rewoven in a much more yeah. truthful emotional way and your performance at that moment was heartbreaking and true and world-class thank you thank you i mean like it was like like with all of your productions emma this is it, i use i can only use the word ensemble and it's how i was trained it was what i it is what i live for when it comes down to theater you know um and i remember all of those guys so fondly at those moments where we're all creating a picture with our bodies, with our voices, with sounds together, whatever part of that picture we're responsible for, we're responsible for. And you can feel as a group how you grab an audience. You can feel how that story transmits into that audience. And some of the conversations I had after those shows were the best conversations in my life because <clears throat> they were with, I remember my girlfriend at the time, her father used to be a Commodore in the Navy um, and he was awful of praise for the show. Um, and it was not a case of like with a lot of shows that, that I have been a part of where people see it as a show of the other. It was a show that was part of them. It was part of their history regardless of the colour of their skin. They were, you know, they, like me, were born and raised in this country. And this is part of their history. And it was an incredible, as often parts of our history can be tragic, but it's also full of life and full of amazing story and, you know, high stakes um, and really, really important. You know, why shouldn't we celebrate all of that history? It just, it doesn't have to look good on the paper. It's, it's full, like I said, of marrow and of blood and of guts and of joy and of love, everything. Really beautiful. Well, here's a little reminder. This is Rani's theme. There's very little survives of this soundtrack as well, but we've got Rani's theme with the beautiful voice of Japjit Kaur.
So that was composed by Stu Barker with Shima Mukherjee on the sitar. Yes, yes, Stu. <laughs> Our lovely Japji, who I still to this day call my pigeon goddess because <laughs> she was the pigeon goddess in Varma Girls. I remember going, well, why is she dressed as a pigeon? That's very strange. But she's, I mean, epic, epic talent. I mean, that girl, she's tiny. I could fit her in my pocket. But my God, the voice that comes out of her is incredible, isn't it? Tanika would always say a voice like honey, and she is so right. Beautiful. Yes. Tony, tell me about your next choice of music and why. Okay. So, again, this is a a couple of different things. It's um, uh, Call Me Out um, by Paul Simon. And uh, one of my best friends at university, Richard Burridge, uh, whenever we had a party at his place... We put this on, and there's a certain bass line in the middle of it um, where all the music goes out, everyone knows that bass line. And we used to repeat that bass line for some reason all the time, just in the middle of the song, and just me and him kind of bonded over it. And actually, I'm godfather to his daughter now and stuff like that. So it's been an important song from that point of view. The other um, place where it comes into my life is... I never had a history of going to concerts, music concerts growing up. My parents, you know, didn't like to let us go out that much, all that kind of thing. I never went to gigs. I never went to concerts that much at all. Um, then a couple of years ago, um, I remember it was the year, the year after we did Twelfth Night. It was the year that Trump came uh, to London, um, and Paul Simon was playing his final ever concert in Hyde Park. And I went down there with one of my very, very good friends, Vary Innes, and we saw James Taylor was supporting him, which I cried my eyes out. And then Paul Simon came out, and obviously I'm looking forward to this song, but in particular, he said that during this tour, this final tour, the bass player that he had been working with for decades had passed away. And he didn't know whether he was going to continue the tour because it was like a death in the family. It was a real, real profound loss to him. And they would... And they went to Africa, and this 19, 20-year-old kid who one of his friends, colleagues, had gone, listen to this kid. It's like the soul of your bass player has been reborn in this kid. And they continued with the tour, and the kid came with them, and the kid was the one who played that bass line in Hyde Park. And it was utterly, utterly beautiful and glorious. So it was, you know, awakenings for me, left, right and centre, going to an actual gig, going to a concert, but also a very special song and a very special bass line. A man walks down the street why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away, my well-lit door. Just a beer belly, beer belly. Get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long-lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. A man walks down the street, he says, why am I short of attention? Got a short little span of attention, and all my nights are so long. Where's my wife and family? What if I die here? 
marvellous what yes a what a yes, track um, so our adventures went over Tony and you came to the globe with me well I um, did and we did 12th night together and you were my Toby Belch resplendent Toby. I say in kilt and pale baby blue um, dress shirt with frills well but it's that classic powder blue tuxedo top right with mm. the frills Mm. on the top, and then a t- Stuart Tartan kilt, which was 
exquisite. <laughs> and I was at the Globe stores. Uh, I was in the Globe over, we did made a little movie there in December and I found it down in the costume store. It's still there and it's still rocking. It's beautiful. Oh, you should Absolutely. so have been given that because they're never going to use that kilt again, are they? That That's surely yours just by some moral. So expensive though, my God. I mean, it was it was proper, properly done. And absolutely gorgeous. No, that show was, it was again, it was an example. I was, I mean, like, neither of us were having the best time um, at, at that point. And I was, my mum had just passed away and you were in your final um, year at the Globe. But that show, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a memory uh, that sums up for me that show. And that was when I was watching the prison scene, we, our first day was the lovely Legato Chocolat. George, the incredible, the resplendent, the gorgeous voice. And in this particular scene, he was dressed as a nun and he was speaking in tongues and he was going off the wall. And I saw a small group, you know, in the globe, in the groundlings, come right up to your feet and you often don't see the ones that are really close to you because you don't look straight down, you have to look out. And there was a group of three young black kids who I think were a family, were brothers and sisters, two brothers and one sister. It looked like the eldest was 19, the middle was 15, and the youngest was about 11, who's a young boy. And every time George did, you know, the clicks with his, with his hands, they copied and burst into laughter and grabbed each other. Every time he spoke in tongues, their faces lit up and they grabbed each other. And the little 11-year-old was reaching out on stage, trying to touch the hem of George's outfit. And George and I uh, both had a scene off after that. And when we came into the dressing room, I said to George, look out for the little, for the little family right at the front of the stage. Go and touch that boy. Uh, go and shake his hand in the finale. And he did. And it... I, I've done a, quite a bit of Shakespeare. I've done quite a few plays in, in my life. And some of the hardest things to do is to engage youngsters. And what you always see when you start a show is kids who would rather be anywhere else. Because I remember what it was like when I was 15. I couldn't give a monkeys. I wanted tits. I wanted sex. I wanted drinking. I didn't care about theatre. I didn't care about plays. And without exception every single time we finished that show i saw the most engaged group of youngsters i've ever seen at a theater show in my life now tell me that's not worth something in this day and age when it's hard enough to engage people on anything and when it's hard enough to get kids to see that there is beautiful things in the world and things worth fighting for and thinking about and engaging with to see 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and even younger, going out there buzzing, singing, talking to each other animatedly, that is more important than anything. That is the value of what we do. That is where I draw value from in one certain way, but it is one of the biggest ways. It was an incredible show. Incredible show. And what you've just described is the magic of the globe, which I'll forever yeah. be grateful that I had two years to play there because you yeah. never get an audience engagement like an audience when it's working at the globe. It's electric. And, and you know, I, as you know, 
I, you know, the jury's out about my relationship to Shakespeare, but it continued to surprise me at the Globe. I mean, you were playing one of the clowns, and I find Shakespearean comedy so tricky because in the rehearsal room, I, I can tell you now, I'm never confident that it's funny. I think, is this? Yeah. Do people understand what is happening? Is it simple enough? Is this funny? And yet, I mean, testament to the amazing performers, you, Mark Antolin, Katie Owen, Carly Borden, what a team! Um, but you would bring the house down and I would go, why did I question this? Why did I sit in rehearsals and not be sure? But you would bring, and George, as you say, Gatto Chocola, bring the house yeah. down with a with a humanity that is bubbling up, is bubbling through history, bubbling back from Elizabethan times through to us and speaking yeah. to that family that you've described. And that's truly amazing. You were all amazing in that. And the the the... It's interesting that you mentioned your mum, losing your mum, which I remember very much. And my heart goes out to you um, still, more so now because I lost my dad last year. So uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a wiser woman than I was a few years ago. Um, but, you know, the reason I chose Twelfth Night is it's a show about love and grief. Um, everybody is in mourning in Twelfth Night. Everybody has lost somebody. And yet there's this true love that bubbles through. And that's why I chose it for my final show at the Globe is I did feel a profound loss at the time. Um, but I really, really wanted to celebrate love. And what you've described is is what it felt like to be in that auditorium. And the, the, the amazing voice of John Fumagena, I mean, the amazing company oh. that we had soaring into the London skies. You know, I, I treasure it. I don't need to go back, but oh my goodness, I, I treasure it as a... They, they, they were some very, very special moments. I remember, um, remember Peter, you, you let Peter take his baby <laughs> on for the opening of when, when his baby was back, you know, stuff like that. There was all kinds of stuff going on. We went through a bounce of, you know, almost five, five or six or seven of us losing our voices at one point and, you know, all of those battles as well. But, my God, what do we remember? We remember Peter's baby being on stage. I remember Gay Pride Weekend. Oh, yes. And us changing the flags of the semaphore to the Gay Pride flags. But also, people had come from Gay Pride to watch the show and had drawn, you know, had layered the flags over the banisters of the globe. It was epic. I remember a friend of mine, not even a friend of mine, a friend of a friend, really, who I'd only met a couple of times, but she brought her son who um, was about 10 or 11 at the time and was going through, uh, not necessarily difficulties, but certainly thoughts about his own sexuality and gender, um, and came armed with questions and thoughts and was utterly enthralled by the show and was buzzing again as soon as I went to meet him afterwards. And it was just, it's the stuff like that that overrides everything else. You know, it, I was I was at possibly one. You know, that entire year, I don't even remember that well. But theatre, um, it's the weirdest thing. In my, I've said this many times before. I never thought theatre would be or acting would be the most consistent thing in my life. It really is. It's where I know who I am. It's where I'm most solid, in a weird way. So when I was rocked by my mum's death even though I probably wasn't great to be around, me being able to be on stage, give me that opportunity to be there, helps get me through. Because otherwise, 
genuinely, I feel like I'd be lost. I wouldn't have an anchor. All of those productions, I did four productions that year. It's not necessarily the best thing to do mental health wise, but genuinely was a lifesaver because, my God, look at the productions I got to do. I was in The Tempest when, when, when my mum died. Then I got to do Twelfth Night. Then I got to do Lions and Tigers as well. And then I went off to do Young Marks. All the, you know, me being on that stage has saved my life on many occasions, not just the, during that year, but it has definitely saved my life. And I need to appreciate it more, or more consistently, I think, than I have done in my life. Uh, but um, yeah. There's a, a theatrical phrase, isn't there, Dr. Footlights? You know, if you're not well or you've got a cold, that Dr. Footlights takes over. But in fact, it is more profound than that. Dr. Footlights yeah. looks after us in a very deep way. And I'm missing yeah. I'm missing it. Yeah. Like you say there's sort of the, the <coughs> to express my feelings and share them with people is you know, I'm feeling the loss. Yeah, well the way to that that communication, whether not just to actors on stage, but like you say, with directors, with choreographers, with movement directors, with MDs, with musicians, with whoever it may be, with caterers of the theatre, with the front of house people, with literary agents, whatever it may be, there's a there's a language and a conversation that we don't get anywhere else. We don't get anywhere else. You can try and do it over Zoom as much as you want, but I'm sorry, being in that room, in that circle, on the floor or on a chair or wherever it may be, is a whole different kettle of fish. And it is, I'm, you know, like we are working, we are living without a part of ourselves at the moment. So let's hope it comes back real quick. Absolutely. Now, I can't let you go without saying, you were in the crown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's, like, so glamorous and so exciting. And I literally sort of shot out of my chair and went, it's Tony. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. I mean, like, um, even just from the point of view of knowing that there were brown people around uh, during all those stories. Incredible. I got to, yes, I got to play Sir Sonny Ramphall, who was the General Secretary of the Commonwealth um, during uh, the 70s and 80s, I think early 90s, so during the apartheid time. Um, and I tell you what, I mean, I, I've had the privilege of working with Olivia Coleman before we did a play at the National together, so it was lovely to see her again. She has not changed one bit, <laughs> still genuinely the nicest person on the face of the planet. But the crown treats, they treat you pretty well, Emma, I tell you. I was filming in in Spain for a week. Uh, And then, you know, working with all these incredibly, incredible people at the top of their game who are all really happy because they're all working in good conditions, being paid really well and being treated with respect. And it's a brilliant show. And obviously everyone's excited about it. I had I had an absolute ball. It was great. <laughs> it was fabulous. Other than the fact that I had to shave my beard, I was happy as well. <laughs> Absolutely well, loved I'm it. I'm just delighted for you. It made my year, definitely. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to play us out on a lovely memory yes. from Twelfth Night, which is Fear No Colours, which was the lovely oh. bawdy salsa scene down below. Oh. So you will hear the voices yes. of Gato Chocolat and Nandi Bebe with the music composed by Ian Ross and the lyrics by Mr William Shakespeare. They say he's very good. 
Apparently so. Love you. Before I let you go, Tony, can I say, yes. Tony, you are a wonderful and rare talent. I truly believe you can do anything. You can sing, you can move, you can act, and you can land a joke like no other. And you do it all with such class and such ease. I think, to me, you're like a theatre 007. You're shaken, but you're not stirred. <laughs> you bring <laughs> calm and confidence to any rehearsal room and you show great leadership and kindness to others. I'm a huge fan and I miss you so much. Can we do it again soon, please? Unless the crown sucks you up into another more blissful right. being. But I do miss you. And in other words, I want to say thank you. Thank you for all you've brought to the work and all you've brought to me and my life. Oh, that is beautiful, Emma. Thank you so much. And like, like I've sh shared so many stories over the, this past hour, it's been great to see you again. You've been such an influence on me as well. I've learned from every theatre director, I think. But I think you and I, <clears throat> I mean, like genuinely, I feel like I butted heads with you and grown and loved and swelled and fallen and just lived. It's been the most lived experience of theatre I've enjoyed with you. I've absolutely loved it. And yes, please, I'm never going to give up theatre. Don't be silly. It doesn't matter how many films, it doesn't, you know, God willing, you know, the work will continue to come. But I could not genuinely, I couldn't envisage being an actor without be, being on stage. And if I don't get to be on stage with you, poking me and prodding me and telling me to just fucking let it go. Sorry, language. <laughs> let it go, Tony, let it go. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that would be an, that would be a tragedy. So yes, absolutely, please. Let's, well, I'm counting as soon as the they days. open the doors again. Let's go. Let's go. Love you very much. Love you very much.
have a memory or connection you'd like to share on Tea and Biscuits, leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846. That's 0117 318 3846. Keep checking our social media for details of our next show. Tea and Biscuits is part of Wise Children's Lockdown. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye.